pray with me? Father, it was on that rugged cross. It was on that hillside outside of Jerusalem where you, the Son of God, God of very God, who came to be born in a manger to live a sinless and a perfect life, you died for me. You died for every person. You came, you saw us in our foolishness. You saw us in our folly. And you paid the penalty for it all. It's where you were torn from the Father, forsaken from God. You did it for me. You did it for us. You did it for your glory and the majesty of your name as you are the righteous one, but in your glory. You saw me in your glory. You saw all of us. So Father, as we gather together on this Friday that we call good in this good day left you dead, as we gather together and we worship and we remind ourselves of what is true, would you strengthen our hearts? Would you encourage our souls? I need your help to do that. We need your help to do that. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Afternoon springs and other folks watching as you're seeing this. The time right now, it's afternoon. What would have been taking place almost close to 2,000 years ago is this would have been the point where Jesus, he'd been on the cross for literally over just three hours. I share that because what I want to do with you guys is I want to walk us through what has Jesus's last hours been like. When Jesus is on this cross, dying for you, dying for me, what were the hours of his life leading up to it? And here's the reason why. I think so many of us, we understand at times, like the reality of the cross where sin is paid for, forgiveness. But we don't know the countless moments of obedience the countless moments of faithfulness where Jesus Christ, he walked towards it thinking of you. He walked towards it thinking of me. I started thinking about this most recently when I was spending time talking with my daughter, Lily. We're working through, she has this Jesus storybook Bible and we've been working our way through it. And just last week, we came to the section, just happened to be, we came to the section where Jesus goes to die on the cross. Now, if you're familiar with the, the narrative and the historical account of the crucifixion, Jesus is tortured. Jesus is beat to where he's wounded before he goes and he is nailed onto a cross. He's bloodied and he's bruised. My daughter, Lily, she's three as we're, we're reading through this account. She can see the picture in the storybook Bible. She can see the picture of Jesus. And this is what she saw. As we're reading it through, she turns and she sees Jesus, this one, nailed to the cross here. But then she notes not only his tear, his wounds, his blood. And she says to me, Daddy, it's bedtime. Daddy, why is Jesus covered in dots? Lily, she doesn't know what those are. She doesn't know what to call that. She said, Daddy, why is Jesus covered in dots? In the best way that I could, sitting there with my wife. I tried to explain to her the heart of Good Friday. How Jesus came to be covered in dots. 
How Jesus came to be broken, broken, bruised, and battered, torn from the Father, forsaken for me and for you. It's a hard story to condense right there for even a three-year-old. It's a hard way to explain the reality of the dots because the story started in eternity past. You see, the moment of Jesus going to the cross, it never took him by surprise. His life was never taken from him. He laid it down. He'd seen it coming. A week ago almost, he would have set his face toward Jerusalem, which had been where his face had been set from the moment of eternity past. I started to share with her, here's what his life was like, best way I could, to my daughter. I want to spend our time today sharing with you guys what were the final hours of Jesus' life like. To the best of our ability, what we have is beautiful authoritative historical accounts that share the narrative in the life of Jesus. But what I want to do is I just want to walk you guys through. I want to share it with you guys, and I want to focus on one moment, this eternal hinge point that changes my life, that changes your life, if you believe it to be true. While Jesus wasn't surprised by this moment, while Jesus had seen this moment coming for an eternity past, Really, to to zoom in, to make it more specific, I'm going to start with the night before. Jesus, he'd come and he was in the city of Jerusalem. He'd gathered there with his disciples. He'd sent some ahead to prepare space for him in the upper room. He was taking his 12 disciples and they were going to go honor and celebrate the Passover festival, the time of remembrance of God freeing his people from captivity in Israel, being the deliverer, the rescuer, all coming under the sacrificial lamb. Christ is, was our sacrificial lamb. He would have sat down with dinner. There's a progression to it, a teaching and a narrative to Passover. It would have come a moment where Jesus would have shared with them. He would have taken the cup. It would have been the fourth cup of wine. He would have broken bread and he would have shared with his disciples, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Jesus was giving us this this ordinance, this future divine institution of communion with him. They understood it partially, but not fully. They would come to understand he's prefiguring the truth of a broken body and a shed blood. He sits at this table. They would have reclined as they sat. They would have talked. There's this amazing time where Jesus instructs. There's two moments in particular. Jesus turns to one of his disciples by the name of Judas. Now Judas, he'd known Jesus. He'd walked with Jesus. He'd done miracles in the name of Jesus, but he did not know Jesus. And he looks at Judas and he says, Judas, I know that you're set to betray me. Disciples in confusion, not understanding what all it meant, Judas stands from the table and he steps out into the darkness. You see, this dinner, by tradition, Passover, it would have started at sundown. Right? Jesus died in springtime in Jerusalem. So sundown, it's approximately would have started about 6 p.m. But this was a long dinner. There was plenty of teaching. Jesus had to instruct his disciples because he was going to leave. He was going to die. Judas gets up to leave to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. There's a moment as they're talking to the disciples. They engage on many topics. 
is one where Jesus looks at the general leader of the disciples, Peter, the, the spokesperson, if you will. He says, hey, Peter, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And when it does, turn again, repent, come back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus turns and he looks at Peter and they would have been sitting at the table still then with what's likely 11 disciples and he engages Peter in the story of Peter. I'm warning you, but here's your sin that is yet to come. Peter says, I'd never do that, God. Peter would do that. It's from that upper room. It's from that Passover dinner. It's from that Lord's supper that Jesus goes and he walks to the garden of Gethsemane. He probably would have left there, I imagine, about nine o'clock, 10 o'clock at night. It's about a 30-minute walk down to this garden. There's no lights. The only thing that would have lit the path would have been the stars and the moon. Spring, so it's cool time. And Jesus, by choice, by faith, walks like a lamb to the slaughter. I imagine as he did it by moonlight, as he did it by the stars, I wonder if he reflected as he walked. I hung those. I spoke those into existence. I created the earth, the creation, all, all form of things. And I wonder if he stopped and he reflected because he was with just a few of his disciples. And if he reflected on, I've created them. The ones who have asked to come, the ones who have asked to pray. Because once they arrive at the garden, Jesus goes and he prays by himself. But then he asks his disciples to stay awake, to be with him, to remain vigilant, to pray. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He, he counsels them. Yet they repeatedly fall asleep. It's in that garden that Jesus comes and before God there's this moment where Jesus was God, a very God. He was always fully God, yet he was fully man. There's this moment where he prays to God and he says, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. That cup, it's a reference to the wrath of God that Jesus knows that awaits him on the cross. He says, God, if there's any other way, and Jesus knows the answer. He's God, a very God, but if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. And then this amazing faith, but your will be done. The reality of what awaited him the next day, and not even just the torture, not even the severity of death on a cross, but the reality of bearing the penalty for the sins of the world. The wrath of God has been on Jesus laid. It led him to literally, physically, Sweat blood, the emotional turmoil, the angst. That continues until about 3 a.m. About 3 a.m., Jesus hasn't slept. About 3 a.m., the disciples would have heard walking. Jesus would have known that they were coming. But Judas comes, leading with him a group of Roman guards. Judas comes, Jesus sees him, and he tells him, do what you've come to do. Judas walks up, betrays Jesus with a kiss. Jesus died for Judas and the kiss that he gave him 
And yet in that moment, what's happening? They are not taking Jesus' life. He is laying it down. The disciples scatter. Jesus always knew that they would. It says if you, if you strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. Jesus is then escorted. He goes willingly, being the one who's actually in control of the situation. But he goes then to three different trials. Three different religious trials. The first one, he's going to go and meet with a man by the name of Annas. Annas was the former high priest. Jesus is being accused of blasphemy, claiming to be God, claiming to be the Messiah that God had sent on behalf of his people. He goes first to Annas. Then he goes to Caiaphas, the current high priest. From Caiaphas, he goes to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, this was this assembly, this ruling elite of religious leaders that have come. And what do they want? They want Jesus to die. Imagine that. Jesus being accused of blasphemy. Jesus being accused of evil and hatred of God when he himself was God. Imagine that. It coming from the Jewish people, his chosen people, and the ones that he came. And he came for all, but he came for the Jews. And the ones that he came for, the first ones to reject, to turn away. It's from there, the night would have gone on into approaching morning. At about that time, about 6 a.m., a rooster would have crowed. This crowing moment was the moment of realization in Peter. If you remember, Jesus had warned Peter in the upper room. He'd reminded him in the garden, but Jesus had warned Peter in the upper room you will deny me. See, Peter, he'd been looking off, seeing this court of the Sanhedrin coming after, falsely accusing Jesus. And while he was there, three different instances, one, even a little girl, came and said, wait, 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 aren't you with this man? Don't you know this man? Aren't you following this man? And three times he denied him. Other places in your Bible, it says disowned. The rooster crowed, and from across the distance, from across the courtyard, from across the room, Jesus turns as he's on trial, and he makes eye contact with Peter. It's from there Jesus is sent to three different trials with the Romans. Here's why, and they're trying to do this as fast as they can. Why do they want to do this as fast as they can? They want to kill him. The Jewish religious leaders had to get approval from the Roman overseers to kill him. They did not have the ability to kill. They wanted him crucified. He first goes before Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor. Pilate, not really seeing fault with Jesus, comes, has Jesus beaten. That's not enough for the Jews there. The people wanting him dead, representing you and representing me. That's not enough. He sends him to Herod. He doesn't want to deal with the political outfall. Sends him to Herod. Herod gets him. What does he do? He publicly mocks Jesus. He clothes him in splendid robes like a king. He mocks the reality that the Son of God there in front of him once sat in the throne room, will go to the throne room, and will forever reign. He mocks him. He doesn't want to deal with it. Sends him back to Pilate. Pilate's still having difficulty finding fault, but in fear of the people, what does he do? He has Jesus flogged, hoping that might appease them. 
to flog. It's like to scourge. It's a form of Roman torture. It was so cruel, it, like crucifixion, could not be performed on Roman citizens. To describe it is to explain the reality of it. What it was is it would have been a short baton attached to that anywhere from three to six different leather straps of anywhere from a foot and a half to three feet in length. On the end of those straps would have been lead balls, bones, straps of metal. The victim, in this case it would be Jesus, would be laid out, hands outstretched, robe taken from the back. The lashes would have gone on the back. It's intention to lacerate, to rip the flesh from the body while people watch, while people mock, while people jeer. There's a Roman soldier that even after this, he comes and he's mocking Jesus and he strikes him. Imagine that moment, Jesus is there being flogged. He knows the names of the people who mock him. He knows the name of the man that swings the whip. It's for those people he's come to die. For you. For me. Jesus is left there bloodied. Jesus is left there, shred of a man, blood torn everywhere. He comes and he's back before Pilate. Pilate again tries to appeal to the Jews, not by way of believing in Christ, but in fear of what might come. And he comes before them and he says, wait, wait, I could give you Barabbas or I could give you Jesus. You see, Passover festival, the Romans, they had this tradition where they would release one prisoner back to the Jews. And he says, do you want Jesus back or do you want, do you want Barabbas? Barabbas, who'd led an insurrection. Barabbas, who was a murderer. Or Jesus, who though you disagree with him and Pilate knew they were just insecure of Jesus leading the people differently. Who do you want? The people cry out, give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. And they cry back to Pilate, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. What did we cry? Crucify him. Pilate says, okay. It's at that point, that would have been when the, the crown of thorns would have been placed on Jesus' head. These thorns, are about an inch and a half long then. They would have been placed on. And one of the things that's true is if you bleed in this area of your body, right, you'll lose a lot of blood. It would have literally caused within Jesus a difficulty in his line of sight. He would have had to clear it from his face so that he could walk because it's then that they assigned to him the carrying of the cross. Whether it was a cross or, or the pole or the cross beam, we don't know exactly, but we know if it's at least the cross beam that weighed approximately 110 pounds. And how did he carry it? He would have carried it over his shoulders. What had just been ripped apart? His shoulders. It's from that moment, it's probably now 8.30, 8.15 in the morning. Jesus starts to walk towards Golgotha. It would have been about a mile walk. He's so depleted. He's so damaged. He's so wounded. But there's a man named Simon who has to help him carry the cross. Jesus physically cannot do it. Simon did not know Jesus. Your Bible doesn't speak to what happens to Simon. But Simon would have come in. He would have helped carry Jesus. He would have wrapped his arm around him. And in that, Simon's robes, at the end of that, they would have been soaked and they would have been covered in blood. I wonder what he did with those robes. You can't wash that out. 
Jesus makes it to Golgotha. It's approaching 9 a.m. It's about that time that Jesus, in order to be crucified, he's laid down on his back. See, they lay them down, and then they go to nail to the cross. At that point, nails would have been driven through his hands as well as his feet. Now, when your Bible says hands, the Greek for hand, it includes both hand as well as wrist. See, so people talk about, did the nail pierce the hand or did the nail pierce the wrist? The number one thing that scholars think makes it seem what would drive the deciding factor of hand or wrist is you needed bone. You need a bone to hold it in place. If not, it would give way. Jesus is nailed to the cross and he's lifted up at 9 a.m. From 9 until noon, he's there. He's beside two thieves. One he would love. The other would reject him. Which one are you? Which one are you? It's in that moment as he's raised on the cross, there's excruciating pain. Crucifixion, it's meant to be publicly shameful. That's why Jesus, he's there. He's not in a loincloth, he's stripped naked. It's meant to be before the public. Imagine, what are the types of personalities that come out to a public execution like this? Who are the people that come, that mock, that tear down, that jeer, that celebrate, that scream out, you say you are the king, so save yourself. There's a sign on top that says, here's Jesus, king of the Jews. Truth. And it's intended irony. Part of the pain in dying on a cross is what it does to the body. It's literally in its own way meant to be a torturous device. Because you choose between not being able to breathe for asphyxiation. Because as your body descends, it presses weight on the lungs and you can't breathe. So in order to breathe, you have to lift yourself back up. So throughout this three hours, throughout the morning break, as sun rises, people cheering, the Son of God being humiliated, who would have gone back and forth between the excruciating pain of lifting himself up and lowering himself down and not being able to breathe. The excruciating pain of lifting himself up and lowering himself down not to be able to breathe. Why do we share the reality of this? Because this is how God died for you. The cross was a shameful death. Yet Jesus Christ, despising its shame, he saw you and he saw me. You must understand this. That is why, even in his pain, Christians, we call it Good Friday. Noon would have come. Sun would be right overhead. He's on a hillside outside of Jerusalem, Golgotha there. Sun is overhead. And about that time, when the sun is at its brightest, a supernatural darkness would have covered the land. Darkness would have descended that God and God alone had sent. It was meant to show the tragic spiritual reality of what was taking place. It was meant to be the symbolic picture of God being torn from the sun. The wrath of God that stored up eternity past, eternity future for my sins, for your sins. God's holy. God is just. He by no means will leave the wicked unpunished. But where does that punishment go? He did not want my punishment to befall me. He does not want your punishment to befall you. So where did he lay it? 
He laid it on Christ. And that is where Jesus endured hell that you and I, by faith, might know heaven. That goes for three hours. We don't know all that that looks like. It's about 3 p.m. then. Jesus comes and he's reflecting on what he would say next. He's going to reference a psalm. It's Psalm 22, but really it's speaking to the broader reality that the spiritual truth is what is taking place. That in order to atone, in order to forgive, in order to amend, in order to make right my sins and your sins, he had to die. Blood had to be shed. He had to be forsaken. Matthew 27, it chronicles this just like the other gospels. There's one verse that I want to read. It's verse 46. It's speaking to what happened in this pivotal moment where Jesus Christ is on a cross, where Jesus Christ cares for you and he cares for me. It says this. About the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, here's what you need to know about this. This again, it's fulfillment of Psalm 22. Jesus pointing back saying, the one to suffer was always going to be me. It speaks to the truth what it means to be forsaken. It means to be abandoned. It means to be torn from. You got to remember, I and the Father are one. That's the way Jesus described. Jesus in unity with the Father, in wholeness with the Trinity, is ripped apart. The language here in your Bible, it says that Jesus cried out with a loud voice. This word for cried in the Greek, it's better accurately translated, shrieked, screamed. Here's the truth. Jesus had been mocked. Jesus had been beaten. Jesus had been tortured. Jesus had been up all night. Jesus was exhausted. Jesus had lost blood. Jesus, by this point, had been stabbed in his side. That was not the worst of the punishment. It didn't compare. That was not what made Christ sweat blood. What made him sweat blood was being forsaken by the Father. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? He he would do that for a, a multitude of reasons, but the one that I want to focus on, right, is he would do that for the glory of him showing the majesty and the righteousness of who God is, who he is by nature. And in that righteousness, it's a a supreme demonstration of love to you and to me. Because here's what's true. He was forsaken that you and I might be forgiven. You see, he was forsaken that you and I might be forgiven. Because here's here's what's true. Like if you're watching this, whether you believe in Jesus or, or you don't, the truth of the reality is there's a God in heaven. He loves you, but you are foolish. You are sinful. You go your own way. The wages of your sin, it's death. And when I say death, I speak to the reality of hell. Eternal, conscious, infinite torment. 
God did not want that for you. God did not want that for me. So what did he do? Jesus Christ paid the penalty. Jesus Christ was forsaken. Why? So that after he rises from the grave, and we'll learn about that Sunday, as he rises from the grave, he can extend to you and he can extend to me this invitation to believe in him. This invitation to know you're a sinner in need of saving. I've paid the penalty for your sin. Believe. And then from that, you would understand how truly forgiven you are. The worst of you. The parts of you that you don't want to share. The moments where, just like Peter did, you, a supposed follower and lover, and Peter was a believer, a saved believer in Jesus, you still deny. You still betray. I still deny. I still betray. Do you know why we call this Good Friday? Do you know why Jesus was covered in dots? Because by him being forsaken, I could be forgiven. By him being forsaken, you could be forgiven. After saying on behalf of the crowd, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. After saying these things to the people, Jesus would come and there'd be a moment, not where his life is taken, but he lays it down, where your Bible says Jesus bowed his head and he gave up, with his, and he gave up his spirit. It's at that point that Jesus died. It's at that point that he died. They would have come and they went to even check that Jesus was dead and the way that they could have done it is they would have broken the legs because in that, it would allow him to sink and further asphyxiate, but they came to him, and they didn't have to do that. Why? One, he lays down his life. No one takes it. Two, I imagine the physical anguish he'd been through, as well as the spiritual reality of being torn. They took it. It's then that Jesus is taken, his body wrapped, laid in a tomb and sealed. One of the things that's true, if you know the end of the story, you know that three days later, Sunday, Easter, he will rise from the grave in victory and hope, proving there is freedom and forgiveness of sin. I was forsaken that you might be forgiven. The check is cleared. You are free. Your debt is paid. But why do we call Good Friday good? Why was Jesus covered in dots? So that I might be forgiven so that you might be forgiven. What did it cost him? Everything. What are you worth to him? Everything. My daughter Lily, as I shared that story with her, I prayed at the end. Lord, would you lead my young one to come to know you, to love you, to follow you? Lord, would you lead me to better know you, to better love you, to better follow you? Lord, you embrace dots 
that I might be devoted. Help me to walk in a devotion. Thank you for the forgiveness that you've extended. And this is my prayer. I ask you as you watch, do you know that prayer? Do you either know the truth that he was forsaken, that you might be forgiven, that Friday is not good news to you fully unless you accept, unless you believe that you are and were and will be again a sinner and your sin is deserving of separation from God. But he didn't want that for you in the same way he didn't want that for me. So he was forsaken that we would be forgiven. That's my hope. That when we call Good Friday good, we would know why it's good. Not because of anything we've done. Not because we've worked our way to God. Not because of any ascension on our own because of what he did for us. He was forsaken that we might be forgiven. Is there hope in what awaits with Sunday in the truth that it doesn't end here? There's victory and promise and redemption. Yes. But today, today we remember death on a cross, alone in isolation, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you for perfectly obeying the will of the Father as you so chose. Holy Spirit, I thank you for the empowerment of Christ honoring the dignity of his humanity and yet preserving his deity and then coming and leading us. Lord, I'm asking you that on Good Friday, we, your people, those who know you, those who walk with you, that we would remind ourselves of what it meant to be forsaken, what it means to be forgiven, why we call this day good, why you magnify yourself through a cross, an instrument of execution. Lord, I pray for people who don't know that reality. I pray that they would see this day as good. They'd see it as good because it is where sinners find forgiveness. The faithless receive faith. Help me to do that. Help your church to do that. I thank you that Sunday is coming. But we remember today is when you died. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us and watching online. We want to remind you guys that Sunday morning, we're going to be gathering again virtually to worship as we celebrate Easter. See, Easter is the reality of hope and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And while hope comes Sunday, what is it right that you now with family, with friends, with roommates reflect on? Reflect on the truth of what he did for you. Reflect on the truth of what he did for me, forsaken, that you might be forgiven. You have a great week of worship. I'm going to see you Sunday. We'll talk to you soon.